0: This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast. And today we're incredibly fortunate. We have Dave Mahan and Sarah O'Brien. They're with Butler Snow. And I have my co-host, Miranda Vieira. She's with Denver Legal Marketing. Miranda. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show.
1: Good morning, Bob. Miranda.
0: Now, tell us a little bit about Butler
1: Snow and what you do. Butler Snow is a law firm with over twenty offices and boy, well, over forty specialty areas of law. Sarah and I have been in Denver for our entire careers. I think we've got a combined nearly 50 years of practice. We specialize in litigation and in particular, the defense of real estate and construction professionals.
0: You know, I think about driving into Denver and driving over here. It's like cranes are sprouting from every nook and cranny. So I would imagine given the pace of construction, not only in Denver, but across the nation that you guys are busy for your typical what does your typical client look like
1: i don't know if there's a typical client i think the construction industry involves a broader range of professionals from those involved in the development to design and contractor professionals to inspectors it's really provided a lot of employment here in in town and it'll continue to do so as people move here so every client is unique and every subspecialty has different issues. But I think we are all collectively trying to figure out how we can best plan and develop proper construction, both in residential and commercial real estate as this town grows. I mean, we've seen growth in the past, but I think this is just the tip of the iceberg.
0: As you guys look out across your client base and the typical challenges that your clients face, we were talking about being proactive to start with. So when you guys are either engaged or retained for somebody for business. What are some of the proactive things that you could advise somebody in the trades that you represent that they might consider?
2: I think one of the first thing we would recommend is that you need to, what Dave and I call this, own your contracts, which is more than, you know, just keeping the paper. We recommend, you know, often somebody will hand you a contract that's a standard agreement that is going to immediately be bent toward their benefit. We recommend that those be reviewed and modified and negotiated so that your contracts are to your benefit from things all the way from limitations of liability to insurance issues, indemnity language up front. That's a very important thing to address before you even start the project.
0: For me, if I was to read a contract and I'm not a contract attorney, I may not see the nuance you know, and there may be a piece that just sticks out at you when you first look at it and go, I wouldn't sign it that way. Do you find that, given the pace of construction in Denver, that there's a lot of contracts that are signed quickly? And if so, what would you advise if folks are going down that road?
1: Well, you're better than some. Even smart people don't read all their contracts. I think there's an assumption, maybe a trust in someone. And really, when you develop a team and you're in a construction project, there needs to be that trust. But I think oftentimes... Even smart people don't read their entire contract and they take things for granted. So when you do read that, you need a legal expertise to know how your dispute resolution process is handled, whether you're going to be handling those up front, how well you need to document your work. And even in the post-construction phrase, how does the warranty and resolution process work? All those are details that we've experienced both on the back end in terms of the litigation over those. So we can provide clients with valuable insight to be proactive, deal with those issues up front, iron out those problems so that if and when you get into a dispute, it doesn't turn into a disaster in a litigation or arbitration. And maybe sometimes you can even avoid that. You
0: know, you guys cover the broad range in the construction side. Is there a top one or two or three problems that you see repetitively that could easily avoid if they would just pay attention to what you guys tell them?
2: Sure. <laughs> <Top of> one <laughs> or two <laughs> or three. Uh, yeah. You know, I think that one that we were discussing the other day that you see a lot when you get to the point of litigation. And, you know, construction projects, especially big ones, there's a lot of documentation but when you get to litigation, everybody goes back to the plans and specifications and was the project built pursuant to them. What we notice a lot is changes are made as the project moves forward, but they're not always documented well. And so if you end up in litigation and you've made a change to the drawing, but the architect didn't sign off on it, or you don't have a change order in the file, you can bet that by the time you get to litigation, there's gonna be a dispute about whether that change was approved, who approved it, did it get paid for, So one that I would put out there is document your file well, making sure that your design professionals are signing off on changes to the design because we see that issue come off a lot that it's, you know, quote unquote, in our world, a design defect, but then it wasn't built per the design. So that's a big mess when you get to litigation that could probably be at least lessened if you've better documented what changes are made, who's approving them, why they're being made.
1: Another common mistake is to kick the can down the road. These projects are time-sensitive and time is money. In just about every business, I think we have that situation. But imagine contracting. You got to get the thing built. You want to have the owner have access and you have a thousand different people involved from the planning, development, building inspectors and whatnot. Sometimes the pressure is so great to get that project done that these project disputes that arise during the construction or even in the planning get kicked down the road. Not a good idea. You want to address those promptly and resolve them. The longer you wait, the worse it gets. It's often the case.
0: You know, it it would sound like to me that you guys are partners in the construction trades without being an employee. I would think that would be optimum if I was the business owner. How do we get you guys on board? Make sure you don't make a mistake. If somebody's pushing me to finish and do a change order without documentation and being signed off, you know, do you want to be a bad guy or do you want to make sure that you preserve your business? That's what it would seem like to me.
1: I think that's a good way to look at it. I gave this example to Miranda once. I mean, my uncle was a dentist. We all think that preventative healthcare or dentistry is important, right? You wouldn't think about waiting to go to the dentist for years until your mouth hurts. But if you do, sometimes it's too late. And in litigation, if we're brought in after the dispute goes to a summons or complaint, or somebody notices an arbitration with AAA or some other forum, there's only so much you can do at that stage. The facts are let out, the contracts are signed, the disputes have developed without maybe... Enough background and documentation, as Sarah said. But bringing somebody in a proactive or preventive measure does cost money and time upfront. But sometimes it can really save you dividends later on.
0: Yeah, my father's advice is you only floss the teeth you want to keep. <laughs> Wisdom. On that note, yeah. go to construction side. So focusing a little bit on housing and kind
3: of you know the building demand that's going on here in Colorado, we're seeing a trend of low inventory.
2: So I wanted to focus on how has that lack of inventory impacted new construction in Colorado? I guess I don't know that low inventory is impacting construction. I think there's a lot of things going on. As Dave said earlier, the population is rising really fast. It's hard to keep up with that pace. I think we've noticed over a number of years, multifamily for sale construction lessened in the metro area. There's a lot more apartments. You know, why that is could be many reasons. Maybe millennials don't want to buy, they want to rent. I know we've heard from construction professionals a lot that finding skilled labor has become much harder. There's very low unemployment in Colorado, so if you can't find the right people to build, the building slows down. But, you know, so I think probably those things affect what inventory is out there, where maybe what we're seeing a lot of is already built inventory going back and forth. But I think there's always new construction in Colorado. It's just a matter of finding where it's being built.
1: What we've experienced is the balance of inventory has been skewed. We have a huge amount of apartment construction in the last 10 or 12 years and not a very significant amount of condominium and townhome development. And I think one of the big impacts of that is we've had a very aggressive plaintiff's bar and very skewed laws that favor the lawsuits and plaintiff's bar versus the development construction industry. It's gotten hugely expensive to get insurance. And the litigation over condo and townhomes has been so great that it's scared people away from that market. We now are seeing people trying to step into that. And there have been some measures in the legislature to limit appropriately construction defects in order to provide a remedy to people who have a problem, but at the same time, treating builders and contractors and developers fairly. But we've had a real difficult time here, and there's real disincentive for builders in this town and in this state to build ownership-based work, meaning condominium or townhome development, because it's just gotten so costly from the litigation side. Do
3: you think they're trying to fill a little bit of that gap with restoration work? You know, from the perspective of a construction litigator, what kind of legal issues are you seeing?
1: Well, we see legal issues in restoration, but primarily we've seen in the last 10 to 20 years litigation over large size multifamily townhome and condominium development. And one of the ways the plaintiff's bar is tried to take advantage of that is if you have a hundred unit complex and they claim that all the windows have problems, even though some of them have and not all, they'll want to claim that all of them need to be replaced. And so it ratchets up exponentially the expected costs. And the difficulty of going into litigation is most jurors are homeowners or they want to be homeowners. And so how do you sell on the defense side a legitimate restricted repair when most of those people really give the benefit of the doubt to the homeowner? I mean, I'm a homeowner myself, and I've had issues with a new house that I had built about 15 years ago. But I understand that there's the difference between real damages and something that's the figment of some lawyer's imagination trying to get a big claim. We've had very high damage awards given in cases. And it winds up on the back end that the actual repair and reconstruction work has been a fraction of what they claimed they needed. And so what the result is, fattened the wallets of a lot of plaintiff's lawyers to the expense of the builders and contractors and even the homeowners later on who have to pay for higher insurance premiums because we've had a slew of litigation. Are there any
3: legal preventative measures that New construction and reconstruction focused companies should be taking now, you know, in, in twenty nineteen when we're looking at the growth continuing in Colorado.
1: Absolutely. And Sarah's touched on that too, and she can add to this, but being proactive right up front in terms of the contracts is one of the most fundamental areas. If you line up your dispute resolution process, the proper insurance and proper planning to coordinate with all your teams who are building, developing, designing and ultimately producing this product for sale, those are important first steps.
2: And I think we were discussing yesterday that, you know, sequencing is an important element of building a big construction project and oftentimes that's not documented well. I mean, it's pretty easy nowadays to take pictures of what things look like at different phases of construction so that if it ends up in litigation, you're not questioning who did what work when I think that we've seen success that people have had with bringing in inspections during construction. So, you know, you know the elements of construction that are most likely to get get raised for big money, windows, stucco, wrap, these kind of things. If you bring in someone to inspect and or your design professional in to inspect the installation while it's being done and sign off and approve it, that's very helpful in avoiding a significant lawsuit over that. And also, we talked about warranty work. I mean, if you can solve the problem, if you have 100 units and two of them have a window leaking, and they make a warranty claim, and you go in there and do whatever it is you have to do to fix that problem, you avoid the HOA calling in a plaintiff's lawyer and an expert who's going to come in and nitpick every single thing in that building, and now you've gone from a couple windows leaking to a $10 million defect.
1: And documentation takes on an interesting standpoint. I mean, the practice of law has changed and so has construction. I think there are creative ways to do this. I mean, documentation, we learned that as lawyers. We read cases, we live in the paper world, but now it's all electronic. But what's fun in this day and age is you can take an iPad, take a picture, draw on it, send it to a project manager who's in another state or maybe even in another country to get clarification or a change or an RFI. You can use drones to examine buildings that are going up that are high rises. So it's a really exciting time to be in the field. But for those people who are on the cutting edge of technology, both on the legal side and in the building side, I think it creates great economies, great fun.
0: I think about just the technology we have here today. My partner in practice races and every car has to have a 360 GoPro on top. So if there's a wreck, they can assign who did it and who's paying for it. And, you know, and I think about if you were a construction supervisor with a GoPro, walking through the side and say, here's where we are and here's what we did, it would seem like that would be better than zero. I mean, yeah, yeah. Being, not being an attorney, but no, nonetheless. No,
3: I'm sensing the theme of documentation here, <laughs> just just layering that, and it's, it's smart. And I really like the idea of utilizing the technology here. I think that bringing up the idea of using an iPad or maybe even drones, I know insurance companies are using drones in a very different way to change the claim process for lots of different commercial industries. But I like the idea of using technology to protect your interests and really being proactive about it It takes two seconds to take a photo. And I, I think that's an idea for, for the litigators in general of helping their clients. I, I like that.
0: Well, you were talking too, when you go in front of a judge and the judge may or may not be really familiar with the fine point of construction, perhaps. But the imagery, it would seem like to me, from technology, go see, this is what it should be. Here's the drawing. Can you see the disparity? I think the visuals would really be compelling.
1: Right. I always like the famous Aristotle quote, the soul does not think without an image. So if you have a presentation, an image, a cracked window or a damaged foundation, it's very compelling. But similarly, What limits there are to those damages and what's not needing to be repaired are also similarly needing to be shown. I mean, I'll never forget, I broke my foot and I was about ready to try a five week uh, construction arbitration case. And I had about a dozen bankers boxes around me on my couch in my house. And my son who's going to high school now, my Marine Corps guy, looks at me and he said, Dad, you can put that all on your iPad. And I said, what? I don't have time. (laughs) And he said, look, I'll show you. And within about an hour and an hour and a half, I learned how to use this pad. And four weeks later, I tried a case using, a, well, it was an earlier version of this, but I tried it. And after that, there were about a dozen lawyers involved. And at least half of them came up to me after my opening said how can you do that or can you show me how to use that and I did. And so, it's I've given presentations now and I've written the chapter in the Colorado Trial Handbook on technology in the courtroom and I've found that I even struggle to keep up even though I'm active in this because there's such changes. But this is valuable from not just the law but even in construction world. I've learned from construction managers on site who take pictures, use PDF Expert or other programs to send questions to their lawyers or back to their office. Mm-hmm. And also to use in the presentation scale, when you can show select documents to a jury or a judge from a pad or from other similar technology, it really brings home a complex topic. You can image in your mind what somebody's talking about.
0: I have a property manager same way, and Ken says you have this, that or the other going on in your property, so send me a picture. I'm mean, gonna I get the picture, and go, I see what you're saying, let's go ahead and do it. and you know, it makes the conversation shorter, my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's
1: become, we've used that for document review, we've used that for on-site project connectivity, so it's, it's wonderful.
3: That's I'm going to turn it over to Bob on construction contracts for a minute.
0: So I'm the construction company owner, right? and I'm busy and excited about the pace of everything, so there's a, probably a, a modest opportunity that I might overlook something given my particular behavior. And, you know, for creating contract, whether it's warranties, insurance, attorney's fees, what kind of advice might you offer to me as that construction company
1: owner? Hire a lawyer and make sure that you own your documents. And as just to play on what Sarah had mentioned before, I think the need is to not accept something that somebody gives you. Again, these projects are multifaceted. They involve a lot of detail from the planning, the development. The building permitting stage, and you're dealing with multiple subcontractors and contracts. Whoever you are, in this well, process, I have an attorney that wrote my will, right? That's <laughs> that's good. And you know what, though, I bet that attorney, if he or she is worth their salt, mm-hmm. listened and talked to you and found out your needs. Mm-hmm. Getting back to client first, I was a client, I was in house for about two or three years, and so that gave me a helpful perspective to mm-hmm. know what the best and most important thing is as an outside lawyer, and that is. Putting your client first its one of the elements in the mantras of Butler Snow and it's not just a saying, it's what do you need and finding that out. I think the pitfalls of what lawyers do are they wanting to sell their ideas and I have a lot of them. I practiced law for 30 years. I've seen mistakes, I've seen suggestions or i developed suggestions about how clients can do it better, but first and foremost, I want to learn that client. I want to listen to them. I want to hear what their needs are, what their wants are and then I can best get to their goal. So, how fast do you want to build this project? How big is it? What do you want to do? Those are all important. Then, what is the best contract that can get you there? Not trying to put my contract into your particular situation. I need to learn what you are. And so, oftentimes, someone has asked me, clients have asked me, how often do my contracts have to be looked at? I think, at least annually, but as Sarah has mentioned to other construction professionals and owners and developers, probably with each respective project because each project tends to be different unless you're building the same thing over and over and over again. If you're a Walgreens or a Walmart and you want the same store in the same location, that is a different situation, but in housing and commercial real estate and development, almost every project has its unique issues. So every contract, has to be looked at individually.
2: In every jurisdiction, you know, we have a lot of municipalities and counties that have different rules for construction of the same thing, and so you need to have somebody who's aware of what those differences are looking at your contract. I think, you know, indemnity provisions are important. We haven't talked that much about it, but certainly insurance is important, and I think that that's become more expensive and difficult to obtain probably because of the legal market in construction and the number of lawsuits. But you know, Dave and I have seen cases where people drew up a contract and you know something about the contract is wrong and there's indemnity for this, that, or the other, and then their insurance, their we had one client at one time that was an earth moving, so compaction grading, that had an earth movement exclusion on their insurance. So that's the only thing that's gonna happen with your work is if the dirt moves, but that was excluded. So Encompassing all of that, if we're looking at your contract before you even get started and what insurance you've, you know, obtained for the project, those things would have been caught before it's a $2 million claim and now you have somebody denying coverage for that claim.
0: You know, I think about there was a couple of questions. So I'm a growing construction firm, right? And I've been using a general practice attorney. At what point in time should I start considering using a specialist? to help my business
1: now (laughs) right now even if you're a small or medium-sized business everything can be at stake to get involved in a lawsuit can put your business and your livelihood at stake so we've counseled small large and medium-sized companies and we can suit the needs to what that particular business is, and like I said, if we can't do it, we'll find you somebody else even outside our firm who will, because the client has to be put first. That's first and fundamental. But even if you have a small business, in some ways, you have more at stake.
0: I think about years ago, the banks were doing stress testing, still do, and I think for the construction company, we are talking about contract review, You know, it would be interesting to have a stress test environment where the business owner says, this is what I think I have. Do my documents support what I think I have? And back to your point of, you know, whether you're in this county or that county or this new contract or that new contract, what do you guys think about the discipline of stress testing where you are in your
1: business and risk management? I haven't used that term before, but I think certainly that's always taking place. I mean, there's always a risk analysis and a stress testing that goes forward. Do you have enough insurance for this? project? Do you have enough cross indemnity provisions with those you're working with to give you enough protection? Are you taking on too much risk, not only financially, but legally? And there's always an evaluation that goes on.
0: I think, you know, from my thoughts as a business owner, you know, my thought would be is, you know, cost benefit. How much risk am I taking on for the price I'm charging? you know, am I covered? What's the likelihood of me getting to the end of this project and not having litigation come out of it? So I think that would certainly enter in my mind as I'm chasing a piece of business down.
1: Yeah, one of the interesting things about real estate development and construction, whether it's residential or commercial, is they have such a long lead time. When you think about a particular risk, if you're doing an investment, you're looking at what are my three, six months, one year yields. If it's not working out, I move out. If you're developing a real estate project, it could have a year lead time just to get the planning and permitting done. And then you've got to hire your development people and you've got to put a contracting team together. And from start to finish, it could be three to five years. Imagine trying to predict the economy that far out. That's a lot of risk that some of these people are taking. Well, I
0: think the interest carry cost of a project and then, you know, the project's done, then you have to fill it. And if there are delays, then you kind of go, your pro forma just went upside down. Right. You know, and thinking about The difference between subcontractors and, in this case, general contractors, is there a differential or a key difference between contracts and between contractors and subcontractors?
2: The difference in the legal aspects or? Yeah,
0: you know, exclusions, protections, that kind of thing.
2: As far as the homeowner goes, the individual who purchases the property, no. I think under Colorado law, you're obligated to provide a defect-free construction, whether you're the sub or the general contractor. Dave will know the exact time. Numerous years ago, it used to be that general contractors could require indemnity from the subs for everything. Mm -hmm. That changed, what, 12 In 2000, Mm -hmm. I
1: think effective 2007, the legislature changed the law. It used to be that large general contractors could demand total indemnity from their subs. So no matter who was responsible for the work, even if the general contractor was 100% responsible for a given defect, they could call on their subcontractor as an essential insurer. That's what's called the type 1 indemnity. Those were legislatively eliminated in the 2007 amendment, so therefore, now you can only seek indemnity for the fault caused by your subcontractor, and it's kind of balanced out the equation. What we had is a lot of major builders and large people using their economic power to demand insurance effectively from their subcontractors, and it put the onus on the subs to have additional insurance or insure out of their own pocket. But as Sarah said, everybody has an obligation in commercial and especially in residential to owe an implied warranty of habitability, is what it's called in the residential aspect, to the ultimate homeowner. So even if you're not in contractual privity, if you don't have a direct contract with the owner, you're still legally on the hook, legally liable to that owner, and that liability could last for up to six or eight years uh, for the duration of the project or after mm-hmm. the duration yeah. of the project, after substantial completion. and yeah. And obviously
2: between general contractors and subs, a lot of that's going to be defined going back again by the contract. So you have to have reviewed back the documents you. up front to make mm-hmm. sure that that's the relationship you want to have, and I think everybody has to follow through. We see a lot of cases where general contractors ask for a proof of insurance from subcontractors that they never actually receive and somehow that gets overlooked. But when you get to litigation, that's problematic, so.
0: It seems like a checklist would be pretty simple to adopt.
1: Yes, it can be, but we have these long terms. Like, so what we just discussed is an interesting point. Let's say you complete the construction. It's out of sight, out of mind. You're not called back for a warranty. Nothing happens. Let's say in year five, you get a notice. I want you to come back and fix this defect. You might have to address that. And I hope to heck You've kept maintained your insurance if you have a main CGL policy, and I hope you kept your documents because these are difficult issues to deal with five, six, seven, or ten years after the fact. Because yeah, people have changed, the memories are gone. Right. Duh. Exactly. Yeah. Then it is a paperwork gig mm-hmm.
0: for sure. Miranda, I think I'll turn over to you.
3: So, construction litigation in general is super complex. <laughs> you know. I think my second job in the legal industry was with a construction defect firm. And I've seen, you know, these captions that come in at like three to four pages long. It seems like every company in the entire world is involved in a lawsuit. I think staying out of a situation like that is super important. So being proactive. Can you share any success stories? You know, I know generally we're not naming names or giving legal advice here in any way. But are there any success stories, owners or managers, kind of construction companies that, you know, just did it right? You know, just little pieces of advice the audience can take away from?
1: Sure. I think in specific examples without naming names or identifying people, parties who've been successfully able to manage their risk with clear clauses that deal with dispute resolution in the most favorable and cost efficient manner up front even if they have a dispute, have been able to get to a forum, specifically arbitration, deal with it in an expedited way, without extensive lawyer fees and argument, and the dispute is handled within a year or less. And those involve both the arbitration clauses and the risk and dispute resolution processes. If they're clearly designated and they have timeframes and limitations and they anticipate a claim and they're managed in the way that lowers the cost, they can be efficient. And so, clients have been very happy with that sort of aspect. Contracts that lack that information wind up getting into a legal morass, like you've seen, Miranda, in lawsuits that last for years and are incredibly expensive. I mean, I hate to say it, but our profession sometimes isn't the most efficient. And the legal bills themselves can cause crippling problems for large and small businesses. I mean, there have been some major builders in this town who have had multi-million dollar judgments against them in lawsuits that have lasted for years and some of the difficulties they've had is not only just the judgment, but the insurance that doesn't cover some of the legal fees, you never want to be in that position. So if you can manage your risk through clauses in the contract that deal with the most efficient way of dispute resolution, that can be very helpful. Sometimes disputes are inevitable, but you'd hate to lose control of the management of those disputes.
2: Anticipating um, the claim. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, some of what we discussed for avoiding mm-hmm. the litigation or arbitration in the first place would be going back to you know, making sure that you have the sequencing, taking photographs and documenting changes that occur, warranty work, making sure that the minute somebody peeps about this doesn't seem quite right, you address the issue then, not seven years later if possible. We've seen people have good luck with hiring or bringing back their design professional to inspect the work as it's occurring, especially, you know, that really helps the general contractors, the developer, as well as any sub who did the work. If somebody is an expert in that and comes back and looks at what you built and signs off on it, it's much harder later for a hired expert on the plaintiff side to say it's all wrong when you should have known it was all wrong. That's just harder to do. But like Dave said, it costs money and time to have that done during the construction. But if you end up in a litigation or arbitration position, that's very helpful to have taken that extra step.
3: Probably costs less than litigation.
2: Yes. (laughs) Absolutely. I don't want
1: to presume to tell contractors how to build. I worked my way through school at times in several different construction trades. And so that gave me a helpful background in doing what I'm doing now. But ultimately, you don't want to be that owner, developer, or contractor who, at the end of the day, in a dispute, is looked at as somebody who was trying to cut costs to do things on the cheap. Well, be it to you that you have to face a jury and you got into that position because you skimped on a particular material or you hired the least costly contractor when they didn't have that experience keep in mind, anticipate the disputes as Mm -hmm. you suggested, and make sure that cost-cutting is done smartly and efficiently and not at the expense of the quality of the project.
3: I always like talking to litigators because I think they see the world a little bit differently. (laughs) You know, you, you can tell where the holes are and you can kind of see around the corner and see what's gonna fly five years from now and what isn't, you know, if we have a third party looking in, with regard to risk avoidance. In Colorado construction projects, you know, focusing just on the working phases, what can we look at there? Is it kind of the same thing with documentation? And how do we avoid risk as it keeps going? Yeah, I know you said to own your own contracts, is that basically
2: it? No,
1: it's just a part of the puzzle. It's really complex. It involves owning your contracts. I think it involves understanding the team that you're working with and managing them throughout. Building relationships with materials, suppliers, and contractors who you can rely upon and making sure that you're hiring people who might not be the cheapest bid but who have the most experience. We're talking about very technical trades here. and. In Colorado, the employment rate is low. It's difficult to get trades. I know major contractors who are trying to get H-1 visas for European workers who are in specialty contractor trades because there's not enough workers here in Colorado to do that work, and that's continuing to be a problem. So the management of these, especially large projects, but really large and small, has become even more complex because of the relative labor shortage. So, it involves working and partnering with people and making sure that your relationships are in order as well as your contracts, and you know, sequencing, there are many different issues that come into play, and so having a lawyer partner as a team with the management personnel throughout helps to iron out a lot of these issues.
3: Hiring the lawyer proactively from the beginning rather than reactively when a lawsuit comes in. I definitely
0: like that. How do the insurance companies that insure these contractors view a proactive involvement of an attorney that specializes in the billing trades? What effect does that have from the insurance company's perspective?
1: I don't think it's pushed enough, but I'm sure they appreciate it on the backside. It's almost like health insurance. I don't know if you get enough of a benefit for taking care of yourself early on, but I think we all can appreciate that, that with enough preventative care, I think the long-term problems may not be eliminated, but are certainly lessened, and that if you get to an issue earlier rather than later, that's better and it's an interesting point that you raise, Bob, and I wish the insurance company was a little bit more proactive about finding benefits for that. I haven't yet seen a discount <laughs> on your premium if you talk to a lawyer in advance to get a risk management wouldn't review, it but maybe be, we'll bring that up the next time we talk
0: to the it carrier. It would be interesting reviews. to see. You know, we're more aggressive on risk management. We've reviewed all our contracts. We have our policies and procedures in place, and we document as we go, and it would seem like to me the insurance company goes versus the fool over here that has no idea, doesn't document anything, and you know, I've got a napkin contract, but that's just me. That's logical. and
3: Yeah, you know, but maybe looking forward and being a proactive business owner, that might be something that they do just as a policy, you know, of this is just good Been a business ownership for a Colorado construction company to say, we, this is what we do for every single project. We bring in, for instance, Butler Snow, we bring in Dave and Sarah, and then they look over everything. It's just how we help us.
1: Well, I will give the insurance company a benefit in the sense that you know the fewer claims you have, the better your future premiums are going to be. So from that aspect, there is a benefit out there for those who manage their work and lower their risks through future premiums. But I wish the benefit was maybe a little bit upfront and a little clearer. But I think keep in mind, the more experience you have in claims and paying out claims, you're not only dealing with deductibles, but you're probably going to have a higher risk as you go forward. So there's a lot of benefit, really, to getting that work done proactively. And our firm has done fixed fee arrangements. So it's another thing that I think people shy away from as lawyers. How much is the bill going to be and how is that going to be run up? We can work arrangements with folks if we do an initial consult or having a pre-planned meeting, getting involved early in on a project. We can fixed fee bid. Uh, risk review management so that they have an assessment up front and know what to expect in terms of how much to pay and to get a contract review and other review of their insurance policies and documentation practices that would help them avoid, if not eliminate, the risk of a lawsuit.
3: That's a smart point. So if any of the listeners that are in the Colorado construction industry are looking at getting involved in a Denver residential or commercial construction project, if they want to do one of these risk review, you know, kind of meetings with you, how do I find you? Should I contact you on LinkedIn? Should we go to your website?
1: The website's probably the best resource. It's www.butlersnow.com and it'll give the information on Sarah and I in the Denver office and the resources that we have throughout our other offices that can provide them with the best review and management. We have personnel who are doing labor and employment law, who do other transactional work, Sarah and I have experience in risk planning and management and also in the arbitration and litigation of just about every dispute that we've seen arise from a real estate or construction project. So again, our goal is to find the right person for their needs. And if we can't fill it, we'll find you someone else.
0: We talk about this all the time. And I said the biggest mistake a lister can make is not call. You know, you can always say not appropriate or not now. But, you know, the thing is, that we encourage is reach out. know no casualties so far absolutely
3: yeah right yeah i like the idea of kind of a one-stop shop you know is what i'm understanding you know a lot of construction companies are not just in colorado you know they are all over the u.s and coming to a larger law firm like butler snow it's one call And then, you know, my needs are taken care of if it's an employment issue or litigation. You make it easy.
2: A lot of different areas that all businesses, including construction, have issues in labor and employment or, you know, litigation, construction, contracts, workers' compensation. I mean, there's lots of different areas and Butler Snow really can cover them all. And, you know, we all work together. We're not separate offices that are distinct from one another. It's one big firm. One team. Yes. So you get the best of and you know, the flat fee idea can apply to all of that. I mean depending on what a customer needs, you could design a plan where, you know, you have a flat fee per month for whatever services you may need from the Mm -hmm. firm. So
0: and that's good for everybody. that's good for you guys, and it's good for them. They can bid appropriately. They know what their overhead is, and you know, short of some extraordinary event, it just makes sense right right, right. yeah,
3: Absolutely. and maybe build it in on all projects mm-hmm. annually. We bring in your team, look at all the contracts, make sure the laws haven't changed, make sure there hasn't been any you know case law you know that has changed interpretation. Right. And I mean, I think the gravity of some of these lawsuits that I've seen it would be a smart practice right. you know to bring in a team. Just why not? Why not, you know, sit down for an afternoon with you guys and have you look it over.
0: So with that being said, statutes of limitations for the the construction business owner, for construction defects in Colorado, how long do they need to worry
1: about it? A long time, longer than you might think. So it's complicated like most things in the law. Let me try to lay it out for you. The general statute of limitations is two years. So an owner or a residential or commercial owner of a property who has a property that's either renovated or built new, they have two years from the date that they knew or should have known of the issue to bring it up in a lawsuit or an arbitration, typically. And that two years can vary because it's a new or should have known standard. It tends to be subjective and fact-dependent. So exactly when somebody knew or should have known of a leak or a settlement or a crack or some defect in the real... Property improvement is somewhat subjective and a little vague, but there is a statute of repose that overlays that. The contractor, builder, developer, or other construction professional is saved from lawsuits if they occur more than six years after the date of substantial completion. It's not defined in the statute, but it's typically the date that the building is certified for occupancy. Now it gets even more complicated. If the defect is realized in year five or six, you have two years from that date of realization to bring a suit. So I said six years, but it can be extended to possibly eight. So what you have is a situation where at least eight years out, you as a builder, designer, construction professional are at risk from being brought into a lawsuit. Typically people have warranties of one or five years but these construction defect suits can be brought within that period of time and the Homeowner Act gives protection to not limit those repose or statute limitations. Here's another twist that what we've seen now in commercial building projects with some municipalities is they demand from the builders, designers, and contractors a longer statute of repose. And you can contract for that outside of that. It's not atypical for a roofing contractor, if you get a new roof, to warranty the building and materials for 10 years or if you wanted to have another particular type of commercial roof, 10 or 15 years. You can do that outside of that. But sometimes municipalities and contracts are asking for, and we've had uh, builders and contractors come to us and say, well, is this legitimate? It is. So some people are actually signing contracts and doing these projects without knowing that their owner or person that they're building this for is asking for a longer statute of limitations and repose. And that becomes complex because you need to maintain your insurance throughout that period of time or risk going bare if you get hit for a claim in year 10, 11, or 12, and you've agreed to take on a longer time in your own statute of repose.
0: That's where ignorance is really expensive, (laughs) or could be.
1: It's tricky and it's complicated, so you need a lawyer up front to help you negotiate or work around this potential minefield of a long tail, if you will, of exposure to claims.
0: So I'm the construction company, and I just got served with a defect, construction defect lawsuit. What should I do?
2: Call us. Now. (laughs) (laughs) Call (laughs) us Now, <laughs> right now.
0: And the number is yes, yes. Right now. yes. You know, and it, so you it's can't so,
2: wait. I mean, you don't want to be in default. It's not going to go you away. Don't want to, no, and you don't. You know, we've had clients who are in default because they didn't answer the complaint, they didn't respond, and then you're going to spend a lot of time trying to get yourself out of that situation instead of defending yourself against the claim. And the sooner we get involved, the better.
1: And depending upon where you're served, if you're served out of state or in state, you can have as short as is it now, 21 days. So if you don't respond in 21 days, you could risk being in default, and undoing that is not easy. Courts take very seriously the deadlines for filing a response or protecting yourself in a lawsuit. Don't throw it in your round file. Don't put it in your desk. Don't think it's going to go away like that sore tooth. It's just <laughs> gonna get worse.
0: You know, for that construction company, they get served or they think they're going to get served. What do you guys do to help them perhaps occupy the highest ground perhaps available to them? What do you do for
1: them? Well, there are measures you can do during the litigation to help mitigate or ameliorate the worst case scenario. It takes a skilled litigator to prep the case, to talk to the witnesses, to develop experts who can come in and help provide the necessary expertise to either call a defect a defect and if it's not a defect, maybe talk about that and explain it or work on a proper remedy. Sometimes defects are there or issues or mistakes were made, but the real issue is how much does it really need to be caught? How much cost is the repair and what is legitimate and what is the figment of somebody's imagination? Oftentimes plaintiff's lawyers are paid on the percentage of the amount that they get. They have a natural incentive to inflate the damages, and it often gets done. That's just life in our litigation system. And so as a result, most of our battles are over how much this costs. It requires a certain expertise to marshal up the experts and learn to present that case at trial. And that's often working with the skilled construction professional or a person who's been involved in either developing or designing or building the project, using their expertise together with a team of experts who we've worked with who are experienced in testifying and know the game.
2: And as well as, as soon as, again, going back to documents, the sooner you get us the documents, the sooner we talk to you, the sooner you find people that did the work or know the answer, but that individual may be someone we have to go look for and find to talk to. I mean, the sooner you get that information, the better defense you're going to have.
0: As a sweeping term or general term, how informed do you think the construction business owner is with some of the topics we covered today.
1: I think people have a general idea that they can be sued, and that losses are out there, and they're expensive, and they're a part of life, especially in Colorado. There's been a lot of publicity about litigation of projects involving residential and commercial real estate, but I don't know if they appreciate the nuances of how they can best protect themselves, Mm -hmm. and how they can position themselves well. I think it's almost something that you keep out of mind and out of sight. There's been some people who are fortunately avoiding of those. But, you know, you mentioned it's almost an inevitability if you've been in the business for a long time to have a dispute of one way, shape or form happen. The key is just how to protect yourself when that happens and make sure you have the proper planning to deal with it.
0: It's oftentimes I think they don't know what they don't know. You know, hope is a pretty thin strategy. You know, hope this doesn't happen. Miranda, I've run out of my inventory of things to quiz you guys about. What right. about you?
3: I just had one more quick follow-up. I know that you all recently published an article on condo conversions and that issue. Anything to just insert as a follow-up? Because I know in Colorado, that's a really big issue in our industry. And any kind of you know final statement on condo conversions, anything to look out for, I know a lot of people are interested in that right
2: now. I don't know about a final statement, I think, you know, in the (laughs) article we discussed about, um, uh, you know, the repose period will be a big issue as to whether it applies and who it applies to. I think, you know, we've discussed whether there will be differences in how it's looked at as to how much remodel is done or renovation is done to an apartment building before it becomes a condo, if it counts as new construction, what applies to that. I mean it's a minefield on how that will yeah. go, how that will work. And I don't know that we have any direct authority in this state on how that will be handled right now.
1: Yeah. I think absolutely anybody who's contemplating a conversion from apartments to condominiums needs proper legal advice. But a firm like ourselves who have experienced litigation and litigation planning. There's a lot of issues to deal with in terms of making sure that Apartment-to-condo conversion complies with the local building codes, mm-hmm. whether the disclosures are done right, what kind of insurance you have going forward for those involved in the renovation or sale. There are a lot of issues that we can help with in terms of providing counseling and risk avoidance. From
3: day one. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I like even <laughs> think earlier. about before you, ADA. Can start. Exactly. <laughs> you know,
1: the
0: Disabilities Act, can, you know, on an older property, you know, are you in or out of code? And if you're going to do a remodel, what effect, and did you or didn't you? And
2: Yeah, and that will come back to the question, is it considered new building or just a remodel? Because certainly a lot of times if you have to comply with the code at the time it's built, even if you sort of change things, doesn't mean you have to, you know, a new code comes out, doesn't mean you have to demolish your entire parking lot to comply. But if you're redoing the whole property to sell it, does that count as new construction under which you better now reconstruct it or remodel it up to the current code, which... I mean, anybody who's owned an old house, that can sometimes be difficult if the code has substantially changed, so. Yeah.
0: Well, with that being said, I'll reiterate what I said before, and you did too. If you're in doubt, or even if you're not in doubt, it'd <laughs> <laughs> be well served to make a call. Yes. Yeah, it right. might be less, a little less expensive.
2: Yes, <laughs> and we yes. are both on LinkedIn. Yeah. So just right. <laughs>
0: well, Dave, Sarah, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you guys. The hospitality of this, nice facility, and uh, sharing your wisdom. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. you. Absolutely.